How are you today? Welcome to Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis, a podcast that explores the world of DNA discoveries. If you have just come to this podcast, it's likely that you are someone who has experienced this existential phenomenon of an identity crisis that you didn't expect. Uh, It's likely that you didn't ask for it. For most people, the DNA discoveries that I'm talking about here are a huge shock to the system. It happened to me because a man sent a message on Facebook. It happened to other people because they do recreational mail-in DNA kits. Sometimes it's even more innocuous than that. In the story today, Melissa's world unraveled because a family friend just made an offhanded comment one night at dinner. So I'll let Melissa tell the story. Um, I know this episode seems like it might be long. That's why I'm jumping right into it. But I also wanted to include so much of it because Melissa does such a great job of illustrating how her life experiences were building her to be the person who could help others with their own journeys, even though she didn't know that's what was going on. And it's such a great example of how seemingly separate life events eventually all clearly feel really connected. Melissa is the founder of Donor Conceived Community Support, a fantastic resource for donor conceived people. She was kind enough to spend some time with me and I'll just go ahead and play it right here right now. Okay. Okay, cool. But hey, let me talk to you about something else really quick first. Did you know that I consider myself a casual vegetarian? Yeah, when I'm not making this podcast, I'm also not eating meat. Whether you're a vegetarian or not, you may have discovered non-dairy creamers, and I love oat milk. So I'm going to tell you real quick about Willa's Kitchen. Willa's was founded by two sisters who were tired of plant-based milks that were mostly made of artificial, highly processed ingredients and loads of sugar rather than actual plants. Plus, their grandmother Willa's recipe used real organic ingredients to create a deliciously smooth oat milk, and they thought, why not bring hers to the world instead? As they started on their entrepreneurial journey, they kept learning more and more about the way plant-based milks are normally made. Heavy processing, loads of food waste, and lots of funny business, including ingredients like rapeseed and canola oil that they didn't want to be drinking or feeding their kids every day. The biggest shocker they found was that oat milk is typically made with the oat sugar, and the best part of the oats are filtered out. This resulted in oat milk with a super sweet taste without all the benefits of the oats. Willa's is made with the entire oat, which gives it a rich, smooth taste and maintains all the oats' protein and prebiotic fiber, which makes Willa's zero food waste. It's not just a healthier, more sustainable milk. It's super tasty. And I can tell you, listeners, they sent me a box, and I'm loving it. Willa's has been highlighted in Bon Appetit not once, but three times. Find Willa's oat milk at willaskitchen.com. That's W-I-L-L-A-S-K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com or on Amazon. If you use the promo code Everything's Relative, you get 20% off and you'll be supporting this podcast. That's promo code Everything's Relative to get 20% off. Okay, thanks. Back to the show. Um, all right. So I'm here today with the founder and community director, Melissa, from Donor Conceived Community Support, um, DCC Support. Um, so thrilled to have you with me. Uh, and so we're going to talk about you and how you got there, how you got to where you are, and then and then also um, about DCC Support and what um, how other people can what it does, what it offers, and how other people can can find you. And um, those sound like good things to talk about. So let's start with you. Why don't you tell me how a little bit about what it was like growing up and um, 
you know, how you got to your discovery and what that was like and how you got to where you are. So uh, I grew up in Northern California uh, with two parents, um, mother and a father and a twin sister and a younger sister. And I grew up uh, knowing that I looked like my dad. I was really close with my dad. Um, and I would say it was a fairly uneventful, average growing up experience. Um, I think that's true for a lot of people. You don't realize what's different until you look back on it. So definitely I can look back and see some things that that were unique, but uh, our family was really impacted when I was 15. Uh, my parents separated. Um, and then shortly after their separation, my dad died by suicide. And that was a huge loss, of course, and loss for our whole family. We were in a small town. So the shock of that, um, I noticed the impact of that shock. And I also had my first experience with stigma because I felt the burden to relieve other people of the tension by saying I was fine, or I felt the need to advocate for my dad and defend who he was and what his values were. We grew up Catholic, so I was learning how to sense what the person's interpretation of suicide was and try to either cut that off ahead of time or empathize with their desire to abide by their faith and their views of it. Just a, a lot of things that I was learning how to do that I didn't realize I was learning how to do. But I was also taking on burdens, I think, of how do I communicate who I am past the assumptions that people might have. So I started with this really uh, strong desire to be okay for everybody else's sake and for myself. Like, I'm going to keep my grades up. I'm going to um, stay the course of I really wanted to be a doctor and I thought I'm not going to let this get me down. Like I'm going to stay really committed um, to those goals. And so that became a driving force for me was I'm going to be a doctor. And I'd wanted to be a doctor since I was in sixth grade. And my parents were really supportive of that. My dad, especially both of my parents had gone to junior colleges. Um, they were very committed to us going to college. That was just a, a given we were going to go to college. I think our whole family didn't have the tools and resources we needed to grieve. Um, there were some community resources. It was actually my first experience with peer support. They offered it free um, at my high school. And I was just, I think, tapped by the guidance counseling department to need this resource. And it was very helpful to meet other students my age who were going through a family loss. And I thought that I had worked it out. I thought, <laughs> well, it's been a year now, so I'm fine. Or like I knew that I missed my dad a lot, but I, I didn't really recognize what grief was. I didn't have a lot of tools or language to talk about it, but I did see the benefit of connecting with other people who had gone through a similar loss. And even in just the story sharing of what happened in the, that time, and also the ability to, the space, the safe space to talk about how does this impact us in these little ways 
throughout our day and week and month, little conversations that hurt differently. Um, it's Mother's Day. This is going to come up. It's Father's Day. This is going to come up. A uh, holiday, a birthday, but also things like who's coming to the basketball game to watch you play, or this person used to be really empowering. This was the parent who played this role and they're not there anymore. So I just heard those stories. And I also noticed how much people's stories impacted me. Like I really valued those stories and I can remember some of the stories they shared even today. I also was really grateful for this therapist who came to make this space for us. And I was curious about it. So I didn't, I didn't see that left turn coming. Um, I'm so sorry that that happened when you were 15. Um, I'm so glad that the the school had that resource for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Cannot imagine what that would be like. There was a lot going on, um, but I did have a very strong connection to my dad and felt this commitment to keep his memory alive, Mm -hmm. um, look for ways that I was like him, um, look for connections with his family still. That was a tricky thing for our family to figure out how to still keep those relationships going. And it was confusing for me because I think it's confusing for teenagers in that life stage anyway of like, what mm-hmm. do I take the lead on and what do I, my parents take the lead on. It was complicated for my mom because she had all this grief. And again, the stigma of suicide was just always there um, with a, all the questions I think that come with it too, not just the judgment, but the unknowns of why and how it just leaves a big trail. That piece though about losing my dad and how strongly I was trying to keep his memory alive Mm-hmm. is something that gets lost when, I mean, I don't want to go out of order, but when I'm trying to speak up for donor-conceived people mm-hmm. with parents who are choosing donor conception mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. saying, no, it's, you know, it's this love that makes the family and the dad's still the dad and the genetics don't matter. And I think this, none of what I'm doing is out of not loving my dad. In fact, I had a very strong commitment to keeping that connection alive. And it had to be primarily the weight was on my shoulders to do that because it's a one-way relationship kind of after somebody passes, like you're, Mm -hmm. it's all about what I do to keep that memory alive. So it isn't out of wanting a replacement or not thinking someone's important. And so it's always strange to kind of have that projected onto me that, you know, this person wasn't important to yours because you had conflict with them or because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no, if anything, I probably have made this person more perfect. And, you know, it's been such a sentimental thing my whole life that it is not this thing of having this casual thing of, well, it's just a, he's not important because he, we're not genetically related. Right. Right. No, I think that's so important to talk about. I also, I never, I don't know that it, that it's ever occurred to me before that that concept. I think about that concept a lot about this whole your dad, your dad is still your dad, and biology doesn't matter, and all the all the the things that we are very familiar with hearing in the in the MPE world. But uh, it's it's also suggesting that we only have so much love to give, like right. like that. There's a limit. Like you can't you can't love your dad 
for everything he is and he's still your dad and have love and appreciation or something for this other person. Yeah. I just never, I never thought of it as if, as if like our attention or our love or our understanding of the world has to be finite. And I think it's also because it's not very, it's not modeled in the same way. So when people say now, when someone passes away, a parent, um, they experience that loss of a parent. If the other parent remarries or uh, has a partnership again, and there's someone in a step-parent role, or even in a, um, I mean, sometimes people choose not to be in the step-parent role. They're more in like a friend role or, but they have an influence in that person's life. It's understood that a bond could grow there. That's love that doesn't diminish from the previous parent or the true parent, however you want to describe it. And people can say, oh, well, I love this person as my dad and I love this person as my step stepdad or step parent or this person I love the way they love the other people in my family and it's okay it's modeled that this is like oh we have these expanding hearts that can hold more than one relationship even in same-sex couples you have two dads sometimes or two moms and that's not that's still you know perfectly understood that you could love two dads. Um, and then that expands three dads for, I mean, there's sometimes there's, you know, a reshuffling of uh, relationships there and it's understood that we could do that. Absolutely. It's not modeled as often. And I think there's a lot of fear behind that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Sure. All right. Thank you for letting us go on that digression. Mm-hmm. So we left off with your mm-hmm. ultimate goal to be a doctor, mm-hmm. uh, grieving your dad, but surviving strongly. And then what happened? So then I got to college and I think it was in my first chemistry lab. It was hours and hours long. And I really wanted to get to know the people in the lab. Like I was that distracting sort of tell me your story. <laughs> Like, yes, we want this all to work out and get the results, but also, who are you? I felt very unmoored my freshman year. I realized how much I missed my dad's encouragement that you could do this. Um, And it felt like a long road ahead to do on my own. But I also didn't know how to have this personality that I had that really loved people and be in this world where it was things were very measured and it was scientific and we had to you know really look at precise things and i remember going to the career counselor because i wasn't sure i was trying to map out i think i was in more in like the advisement department trying to figure out how to map out all my courses and i wanted to do a year in europe and i was trying to figure out how to fit that in with pre-med and they had you take all these inventories and personality things. And so there was this point when I met with them for the follow-up and they said, you know, you don't actually match the profile of a physician. Um, You're kind of off the charts on the people part of things and not so much on the science things. Also, you're, you, you're not as introverted as most doctors, you know, so people who love their jobs as a physician, that's what we measure you actually score more for people who love occupational therapy or who love counseling or who 
like communications. And so they gave me these other areas that seemed like a better fit. Also around that time, my grandmother, my dad's mom passed away a couple months after he did. And my grandmother passed away my freshman year. Um, And I was really close to her. So (laughs) that was just, I felt this, I had a lot of grief and I just didn't know where it should go. Um, again, I landed in a peer support group my freshman year for people who were um, going through grief. That time I approached it, this is so hilarious now, with a, oh, I've been through grief, so maybe I can help the other people. <laughs> Which seems so hilarious now because in my mind, I thought I'd been through the really hard one. So the fact that I had these two other losses of my grandmother's, I thought, well, I've made it through the hardest one. So this is just like the ripple effect. I didn't realize the compounding effect of grief. Right. Right. I mean, how could you to like any, I mean, especially, I mean, obviously, but like in our culture, we don't talk about this. Mm -hmm. And then, and then on top of that, to be at that age in college, like I just in the dorms, like I can't even fathom trying to navigate all of that all solo, totally solo. Well, there was this, I don't actually know if he was a psychologist I think he, I don't know what his official uh, credentials were, (laughs) but he worked in the student counseling center. His name was Fred Barnes. I should look him up. Um, And he just started talking to me about this idea of credentials, like you are being credentialed for something, but you don't know what it is yet. So hold on to these things. Don't try to dismiss them. Don't try to let them like, you need to heal from them and that's hard and it's going to be a lot of work, but it's not wasted work. It's going to be for something. And there are people that you can identify with that other people can't identify with because of these hardships. So that was a pivotal conversation because I, I tucked that away that these things could be credentials for something. Um, And so you know, I went, I did change my major to communications and, and psychology. I like straddled both majors until the second semester of my senior year. So I finished up the communications degree and had like five units left or five credits left for psychology. So my dad had been in sales and he talked to me a lot about why he loved sales um, because he loved hearing people's stories and he loved helping them solve a problem. He thought those things were core parts of good selling. So he would come home from work and tell stories about people, the amazing people that he met. And I did not think I was ever going to go into sales, but I remembered the way that he talked about it. And so when I, and I also was told all the time that I was like my dad, I was a people person like my dad. I have a dimple on the left side of my smile. Like my dad, I have his chin. I have his brown eyes. I have his eyebrows. I have his dark hair. Um, I didn't wear sunscreen because I had his Sicilian skin supposedly. Now I think that's funny because I would go get new makeup and I would say I had olive skin and they would put the little test things on and they'd say, it's not really that olive it's more neutral, you know, and I remember thinking like that's a moment that stands out to me now that the actual measure of it is I wasn't very yellow or olive, but I just went with what I, my brain told me, which is I'm half Sicilian, you know, I probably have a lot of skin damage from not knowing my true genetic identity at the time, but the memories that come back, they're so, um, they're so amazing how 
specific they are yeah. and otherwise forgettable. And yet it's all in there and they all come out like, oh, right. At the makeup counter. Right. Ugh. Yeah. I was just talking about the book this morning, um, Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. And I think it's so interesting what our brains quickly take in and then we we do our logical thinking to override it, but that that data came in and we just didn't know how to fit it in. But also there's some corner of the page that's bent for us because we can go back to these little moments that we scan back and we can remember these little pieces that we didn't know how to fit into the puzzle. And then later on, that puzzle piece makes more sense. That's so beautifully put. So when um, when I graduated that was probably the only time in my life that I short that summer I experienced what I would say was depression and it terrified me because I was on the lookout for mental health issues. I mean, I avoided, (laughs) it's probably interesting to see what it would have been like if I would have known that I was donor conceived in college, but I did not drink very often at all. And I was pretty vigilant about the things that I thought could trigger depression because I was so afraid. That was one of the stigmas that I had um, was trying to convince people that I wasn't going to go through the same thing and convince myself because I was afraid that maybe this would happen, that I would develop either bipolar disorder or depression. Manic. I mean, I just didn't know. <laughs> I think that might have been part of my desire to be a psychology major was how do I, what is this and how do I prevent it? I didn't know that my dad had struggled with depression. So I think I wasn't sure if I would notice if I did either. So it created this hypervigilance of what are the signs? So after my, after I graduated, I had this stretch in the summer where I think I was probably having a little bit of a, just the normal crisis of what do I do now? But I, I didn't know what I was going to do and I, I just struggled. And I remember being very scared because I thought, oh, this could be the beginning of a longer struggle with depression um, because of my dad's mental health history. I, I remember talking, if I had a, you know, a physician, <laughs> a family physician that I, mm-hmm. when I moved to the Midwest and went to the doctor was like, what's your health history? And I shared cardiac issues on my dad's family side and the colon cancer, but of course, the one that was most remarkable to them was always that my dad had died by suicide and had struggled with depression. And the alcoholism that ran in different parts of the family was also, you know, of significance. So it was something that weighed on my mind was this, this mental and medical health history. Um, I ended up working in sales and felt like maybe it was faded because my dad had been in sales. So Mm -hmm. maybe I'd been interested and dabbled in these other things, but here I was coming back to what was in my DNA that I would go in sales, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I kept reading medical journals. (laughs) Are you sure you don't want to go to med school? And I would, I kept going back to, I think I want to go into healthcare. I think I want to go into healthcare. And it just, again, it's like, I'm not going to go to med school. Like I've already, but I would read these stories of the 65 year old that just graduated med school or the story of like the mother and son who went together. And I just thought, but maybe I should, you know, Um, but the practical side of my brain always won out. 
So I was in sales, but I felt, or marketing business, I was a corporate trainer for a while. I loved the people part of that. But again, I would just come back to either mental health things or health and wellness things. And so when I um, left the corporate world to be home with my growing family, I decided when I go back in, when I go back to work, I want to do something different that feels like a helping profession. And I'm not sure what that is yet, Um, but I'm going to go back in differently now, I think. So I, that's when I looked again at occupational therapy or speech pathology or counseling, you know, financially it was tricky at the time to figure out how to go back to grad school or go to grad school. Um, But I started taking prerequisites for occupational therapy and thought, okay, this is the route that I'm going to go. You know, that's a big fast forward, but married three kids, three boys. My oldest was born on my dad's birthday. Holy smokes. Like this really sweet, he was, that was my due date, but nobody ever has their kids on their due date. Right. 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 Yeah. won't actually happen. And the day before my due date, I went into labor. And so I had my oldest on my dad's birthday. Wow. And that was just so significant to me. We chose his name based on those connections to, um, to our dads. And, um, so it was just very significant. Um, one of my kids loves to play the drums. My dad loved percussion. And so that was a connection, but I was really confused about why my dad's should be dominant gene brown eyes were not showing up in any of my children. Oh boy. (laughs) Now, I mean, I would look back and say it was only a bent corner, but it should have been more. And I didn't, I didn't know why that was. I just thought that was so interesting. But then my younger sister, both of my sisters have blue eyes. I'm the only one with brown eyes. Um, But um, my younger sister is, I don't know, maybe five inches taller than me. She would have been probably the same height or taller than my dad if he was still alive when she Mm -hmm. reached her maximum height. Um, God, it's so off in the eye color. I know. Continue. (laughs) Um, My sister and I were talking about, we actually have another NPE in my dad's story that was known the whole time. So there was a mystery that we would like to have solved on that side. So that's what made us think about doing DNA tests originally um, because we wanted to solve my dad's mystery and actually his biological father's mystery. So we thought we could take DNA tests to put connections to things that were our dad's and his dad's mysteries. And so we kept talking about it. And also my sister and I had each been to Europe, but we had someone in the family who'd gone specifically to Italy, to the places where my grandmother had been. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to solve this other mystery too? So shortly before Christmas, um, one year, there was a conversation with a family friend that we hadn't seen in a long time. And he had taken a 23andMe test and he was talking to my sister about his results. And he knew that my sister was in healthcare. Both of my sisters are in healthcare. (laughs) Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. (laughs) So, um, which was also always funny because I was the one that wanted to be the doctor. And then it was my two sisters who were in healthcare. So he made some comment to my sister that we, that she should try to find her biological father. Oh, and 
he really, she thought, I mean, it was so casually said Mm -hmm. that she thought there was some mistake. And so she went back to the conversation. She texted me immediately and said, Mm -hmm. do you know what he's talking about? This was such a strange comment. And I said, I couldn't be anything to that because dad never treated you any differently than he treated me. And if there was some affair or something had happened, I feel like I would have been able to tell the difference between the way he treated all of us. Oh, and so in my mind, I just measured the way he treated her against the way he treated me and thought there can't be anything to this. Um, Because in my mind, that was the only option I could think of for Mm -hmm. why to find a biological father, that would be, you know, the first place my mind would go is to an affair. And then I also didn't think that my mom had an affair. <laughs> right. I mean, when you can't, you just can't, when you're, yeah, when things are not on your rate, we say this all the time, but like when things, when they're not on you, when you cannot fathom it, yeah, you, it does not come to mind. It doesn't come to mind. So they had a clarifying conversation, which was shocking. Um, and he just said, your parents used a sperm donor and they were planning on telling you I thought they did tell you. That's why I said that. Oh, oops. And he felt horrible. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Oh, God. <laughs> but Ugh. he was really apologetic, but also he, I think, thought maybe he got it wrong. Like he kind of had this backpedal moment. I think he, he felt horrible. I mean, as any, I, mm-hmm. we tried to reassure him this is not your fault if it's true. And if it's not, we'll figure it out. Um, so my sister and I decided to do DNA tests. Um, this interesting thing is he mentioned when he talked about it, he talked about it being all three of us. And I, because I had already thought, well, if it's a situation with the sperm donor, there's six years apart between my younger sister and I. So maybe in that time, my dad they thought they didn't want to have any more kids and then they tried to get it reversed. So that's the story that I built in my head. We all know that story. Yep. We scramble. We try to make the connections where we can and put together the pieces. So I, we ordered our tests. Um, and I will just fast forward to say there was a lot of discussion in our family and it was very challenging, which mm. we're not the only ones to go through that hard thing of what have you been telling yourself for years? And then how do you get a new truth out there? It can be very painful. So all three of you took a test? No, only two. Okay. Two of you took a test. And was your mom around? Yes. So she was around and I think, um, not sure which, I don't know if she knew what to say. I don't know if she knew what was true. And I, I would say the explanations didn't always match. And I'm not sure how much of that was her choosing different stories or her believing different stories. I think she was going through her own crisis for sure of discovery, just because even if, even if she at one point did know, I don't think she consciously knew anymore. Part of that was the indus- the time and the era that we were conceived in because I read a lot about the swirl method or the idea of mixing and that suggestion that this method would allow the parents of heterosexual couples to just assume that 
it worked. And this magic <laughs> donor sperm would somehow fix uh, or the other sperm would hitch a ride. I mean, we joke about it in very like casual ways in the support groups, but mm -hmm. you know, the sperm with no tail did not hitch a ride on the sperm <laughs> tail and get there, right? If it's, it's such a funny concept when you talk about it. I mean, when you think, I mean, it just like, if you think about it beyond anything, it beyond a second, it just becomes such an odd concept. And they did it for years and years and years. And I think, you know, I think there's some truth to the fact that they did it with the hope that it was going to help the bonding of the parent and child, but mm -hmm. totally at some point that needed to be re-examined and there was just no record to go back and say, Hey, we have better data now, <laughs> or we have learned more from the adoption world, or we've learned more and never mind. You need to go back and do this differently. Like we have in every other medical right. problem, you can go back and say, we used to think this, but now we've learned differently. So we don't treat a whole lot of things the same way that we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And this, you can't update people if you don't know who they are. And that's the, that's the trouble with the donor conceived community is there's no record of who to update um, and how to communicate in a way that targets that audience. Pardon this interruption. You know, something I've been thinking about a lot over here at everything's relative podcast sex. So let's talk about setting the mood. That's right. The mood, you know, when you want to get intimate, or perhaps after you've gotten intimate, be it by yourself or with a partner, there is something you need to have on your nightstand. MOD. MOD is redefining what sexual wellness and modern intimacy looks like. They are creating a whole new chapter in the outdated sexual wellness industry. MOD makes modern, body-safe, and high-quality essentials for before, during, and after sex. They have a whole variety of products, like vibrators, lubricants, and condoms. Their products are absolutely beautiful, with a lot of attention paid to design, sustainability, and simplicity. Basically, if sexual wellness has a name, it would be MOD. Honestly, these are products you want to be seen in your bedroom, instead of hiding them. And I don't know if you guys know how ad partnerships work with podcasts, but they sent me some products, and let's just say everyone here at Everything's Relative, everyone is satisfied. One of the coolest things about Maud is that it is a female-led Latinx-founded company. Their founder, Ava, created Maud for all bodies, all genders, all races. Dakota Johnson just joined Maud as their co-creative director. Hello. And guess what? You, listeners of Everything's Relative Podcast, are getting a treat from Maud. As our partner, Maud is giving $5 off your first order on all products with the code EverythingsRelative. Head over to getmod.com forward slash everything's relative. That's get M A U D E dot com and use everything's relative to get $5 off your first order. Enjoy the mood setting. We had a lot of stress and miscommunication and conflict. Um, you and your sisters and your mom say we just each were dealing with it in different ways. I realized pretty early on, this feels a lot like talking about suicide because there's this telling of the story that has this shame piece attached to it. But also there's an awkwardness, which I think has improved over time in conversations around suicide. There's more awareness now that about the topic. Um, 
but for it, it still exists that when you talk with someone about suicide as a family member of someone who died by suicide you can anticipate certain questions in the other person's head and assumptions and i've realized pretty quickly this was happening with the donor conceived conversation because as soon as i said the word sperm donor i just could tell the person's mind went traveling to, oh my gosh, this is so awkward. This is so weird. Or I watched a TV show about this one time, or how many siblings do you have? Like they, it immediately, a person goes somewhere in their mind and it's in the conversation, the person who has experienced the event of, you know, being donor conceived or the experience of being donor conceived. And that's part of our identity. Then you feel like you have to manage not just your own story, but how the person is receiving the story. And, or you know you're gonna be affected by their interpretation of it. And so it was really challenging to talk to people and brace myself for their response, just like I had to do about my dad's suicide. That I had to be ready for their response to not match up with the way they maybe handle other topics. Mm-hmm. It's like you can see this person is really empathetic and they're really caring and they love you a lot. And then they say something and, oh, I wasn't expecting that dismissal or I wasn't expecting that they're trying to comfort, but it's in a way that is not helpful. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're minimizing my pain because it makes them uncomfortable. And um, with comments like for suicide, you know, well, at least they're in a better place. Yeah. That's the first one I went to. Yeah. And so, so then the equivalent comment in donor conception is, well, it doesn't change anything about who your parents are. Mm -hmm. That's true, but it's not the answer for Mm -hmm. the problem I'm experiencing right now. Like this isn't, you can't say that and undo all the effects of it. Just like saying somebody even if you did believe that they were in a better place, it doesn't fix them not being there, you know? And so I was drawing those connections to, I feel like I've done some of this before and that did equip me. Um, I think that helped. And I also had this moment of thinking, huh, these are other credentials. Fred Barnes. Yeah. Fred Barnes was back. Mm-hmm. He was back. And that little whisper of this could help some other people, but I didn't know what that meant yet. And I really did think it was um, the experience of knowing who you are and having to dig into that. Maybe there are other people who are going through an identity crisis and you'll be able to connect with them in that way. I didn't, I don't think I thought so specifically other donor conceived people at the time. I just thought this is an identity crisis. Other people face those too. Hmm. And so I still thought it would make me a better occupational therapist, for example, <laughs> like someone who, someone hmm. who's been through an injury and not untrue. Great. <laughs> you know, but I was like, stay the course, like you're going to be an occupational therapist. So my sister and I got our DNA results back that we were half siblings. And then I had my cousin on my dad's side, take a DNA test because I still thought that I was, well, my sister is donor conceived, but my mom had explained that my dad, that it still could be 
my dad from what she was told. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so again, that convincing of like, I have his dimple. I have, I mean, I still thought you're like, this right. is not like, a problem. I still think <laughs> I'm my dad's biological daughter. I have the Italian olive skin. <laughs> mm -hmm. and so, um, so anyways, I, the day that I got those results from, well, the day my cousin got her 23 and me results and we were not a match was really hard. <sighs> so it was like losing him again, even though my dad was still my dad. Mm -hmm. It was a layer of losing him that I, I was shocked by even being in my forties and having lived this whole season of life without my dad, it still felt like losing him. And so there was that grief, but it was, I learned later about disenfranchised grief. I didn't know how to describe it at the time, but it was a grief that I didn't know how to tell people about. How do you tell people about losing your dad after he's been gone that long? Mm -hmm. I also felt a lot of shame, like I'd been lying to people about who I was. Isn't that interesting? Isn't mm -hmm. I mean, okay, continue. Sorry. Logic, no, you <laughs> I mean, it is. It's like logically. What? I knew that that shame, I had been telling the truth to the best of my ability, but yeah, it didn't. I still felt it. I knew what to call it. I even knew that it wasn't logically true and I couldn't shake it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had gone to a, this is so interesting to me, but I went to a memorial for a relative of my dad's that I had never met. I had never met most of the people at that memorial, but I went to that memorial specifically because I thought I had a genetic connection to these people. And I thought it was a way to connect to my dad. Like I'm going to hear stories that, about him. I mean, I guess it's okay to say, like I went to my dad's biological father's memorial mm -hmm. just because I thought this person is genetically connected to my dad. And I felt embarrassed once I found out, like I went to person's funeral mm. and met their family and said that I was my dad's daughter and I am my dad's daughter. But the only link there I thought was genetics and they accepted me based on genetics, even though we'd never met. Mm -hmm. And I, at that gathering thought, it's so strange how everybody here has the same dark brown eyes and the same dark hair. And my sisters and I really stand out here as not looking mm -hmm. like the rest of the family, which again, <laughs> my brain mm -hmm. just bumped right over that, you know, like yeah. it's fine. So your, mom, um, your mom's genes are really strong. They must be. Yeah. yeah. These, mm -hmm. these German blue eyed. Yeah. genes are very strong. So I registered on the donor sibling registry, but I didn't have much information to go on. I just had the name of the hospital where I was born and my age birth date, obviously, um, I did have the name of my mom's OBGYN and I pretty early on tracked down that OBGYN because I had by that point read the stories of the possibility that it was his um, sperm that had been used. Thankfully, um, I didn't have a lot of correspondence with him, but he was very emphatic about the fact that he never used his own. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I figured if that was the case, I would have had closer matches on my 23andMe and I also did ancestry, but the closest I found was a like third 
third and fourth cousin. So I didn't have any, so I thought it wouldn't, he's probably telling the truth because there would be more people. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't tend to just do that one time. <laughs> um, <those laughs> doctors. So um, I really couldn't find anything on my ancestry in 23andMe that led me closer. I did have the benefit of my younger sister had tested too, so we could see what must be paternal because we shared the relatives on my mom's side. So we would compare differences and it was really interesting to find out, you know, she was Norwegian and I was mm-hmm. not, you know, these mm-hmm. things made mm-hmm. a lot more sense why she was so much taller than me than, so that was really funny. And I think the whole time we had this blend of curiosity mixed in with our confusion and grief, mm-hmm. like humor and curiosity were alive and well the whole time, even in the middle of the hard parts of it. And I think that's something I've learned is also connected to the grief of a loss, um, like of my dad or of other people that you can still find these little moments where you can laugh about things or stand back and see how crazy it all is. So absolutely. um, And it does get you through (laughs) the the harder days for sure. Yeah. I I kind of feel like you're in a way there's a, there's a way I'm not sure this is the right word, but you're lucky, but you had a sister to get to compare things with. That's very, very cool. <laughs> yeah. And it helped that we both were curious, mm-hmm. like we both mm-hmm. wanted to know. So I had somebody who I could call about what if, and what do you think maybe, or I got this much closer. Yeah. So I registered on the donor sibling registry. I was really frustrated to not have enough information to share there. I was frustrated at the amount of money I was spending on solving this mystery, especially because I would get, I don't know how I got these emails, but you know, for $2,000, we'll help you find up to 40 hours of searching. And I'd say, well, what happens if you find them in the third hour? Do I get the money back or? Right. Right. Is that probably it? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was very frustrated at the lack of resources for how to do this research. And I was frustrated. So there was this part of my brain. I don't know if it was like the business part or the helping part, but I observed my own experience of going through what I was going through. The fact that it took me, I don't know how many months, nine months, 10 months, a year, something to find out the name of what I was, was donor conceived. I didn't even know that much. I knew that I was a grown up sperm baby. Right. Actually, don't, I don't know if I would have known before now. What's the name for a grown-up sperm baby? But I'm not a baby, but that's how I was. Mm-hmm. But the industry doesn't, well, Google didn't know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just got a lot of ads for donating eggs and donating sperm, which was really unfortunate because I could see how much money, based on trying to solve my own mystery, I was getting offers for the industry. It's like, you know, if I were donating eggs, I could make $45,000 right now but I know how it feels to be the product of anonymous donation. So it feels especially awful to receive ads for it. Mm -hmm. And all the ads were based on, you know, appearance and intelligence or, you know, choose, choose what you want them to look like. And it was just gross to me to see those ads targeted I mean, first of all, that they were available, but the reason they were being shown to me was because of the mystery I was trying to solve. Right. And I think about that for other categories of like, I don't know. It's just strange to me to think that this exists in this space where you don't 
you're not given resources because there are no resources out there or there were not. So mm-hmm. instead you're mm-hmm. given what caused the problem in the first place. Yeah, no, it's ama- that's an amazing cycle or tri- triangle lang- tri- triangulation of information. If I Google, you know, her lung cancer mm-hmm. and then just get a bunch of smoking ads, for example. Right. Like, but that doesn't happen because that's a recognized treatment that's needed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like here's the providers for treating cancer and you'd get something for the cancer foundations and, you know, things right. like you get tons of support. Yep. Mm-hmm. But if you're donor conceived, you just get an ad for how to donate your eggs. And so um, I kept noticing the resources that were missing and it might, at that time it was, here's what someone should do. Here's what the clinic should do. Here's what, here's what's missing. Um, thankfully I had a great therapist at the time who was willing to talk about the topic. And I, I know that doesn't sound like much, but I think it's hard when it's not something that someone has been trained on. <laughs> and she was like writing things down because she wanted to understand what was going on, but she didn't, she hadn't been taught about this. So she was trying to learn all this language and she, are you sure the DNA test is correct? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you know? And wait, how, how does this work that you're matched with these? You know, so she, she was trying to go along with me on this journey and provide support, but she had to learn at the same time. Yeah, that's hard. Also put me in the role of educating her, mm-hmm. which I didn't, I had the capacity to do, but not everybody does. Yeah. Yeah. So that was an interesting observation. Hmm. So I just kept making these little either mental notes or literal notes of what could be created for people. I still thought, well, someone should do this. And when I'm doing occupational therapy, I'll find someone who I'll be in healthcare. So I can. <laughs> and then it started creeping into some of my classes, the discussion topic of could an occupational therapist, you know, lead support groups for people like this? Could they... <laughs> And my professors were like, well, they could, but it's probably not the primary. And I realized I was starting to, like, I had this thing that I thought I was going to do. But my intuition was really taking me to this other place or my desire to help was taking me to this other place. And I fought it for a little bit. I did eventually decide not to continue with that career path, which we'll get to. But um, yeah, I, it's funny how long I fought that for, like, Hey, this time I'm going to stay the course like I didn't for med school. So I'm going to stay the course. So I registered on the donor sibling registry, no information. I had so much frustration. You've, you know, your guests have shared this part, right? The looking in the mirror, the looking at your hands on the steering wheel. Where do these eyes come from? All of that was, I had that same typical experience of mm-hmm. who am I? Who are my parents? Like, who's this biological person who's this person that I have half, half of my biology comes from them. And I don't even know who they are. And then the fear of, do I want to know what if they're really unkind? And what if they're really, what if the medical things that they're, they've faced in their life are worse than the things that I, do I want to know, or do I just want to live in denial or just not know? I just was so afraid of what I would turn up. Hmm. the struggle of, is this information going to be helpful or harmful? And 
right? That time of waiting helped me realize how much I wanted to know. Mm. I wasn't ambivalent about it as much over time. And I still felt scared, but I felt like I really, that desire to know grew and grew over time instead of lessened over time. So I, I hit this point where I thought I'm not ever going to know. And how do I make peace with that? Um, fourth cousins, third cousins were not enough information to go on. I did find out that a great grandparent had 16 children or 15 children. So I was like, it is a literal needle in a haystack. I'm not going to be yeah. able to find yeah. out. Oh. Many months later, over a year after my initial discovery, I... I got a very strange email <laughs> um, saying I have information that could help you find your biological parents or your sperm, the sperm donor. And I was very suspicious because I'd gotten all these emails claiming to be able to help that always wanted money. And um, so I replied very skeptically to the person like, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> <Was I smart? laughs> like, excuse me, excuse me. Right. And so it was a person who ended up replying and saying, um, I, I know what it's like. I'm donor conceived. Mm. I have information that about the practice um, and how they found their donors. And it's not as big of a pool of people as you're thinking, as they told you. Wow. 20 minutes later, I had a list of names of possibilities. And who, what, who, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> this mystery person. Yeah. Was it someone that you knew? They've, no, they found me through donor sibling registry. They saw the name of the doctor the year. Got that it. Okay. So that was the connection to yep. you. And she said that she actually saw the posting because of the way that registry works. She saw the posting, but she couldn't contact me unless she also paid the $99. So she shrugged it off and thought, I'm not paying $99 to tell a person that I have information about them. Mm -hmm. But then she couldn't shake it. Uh, now the well, funny part is there's a little spiritual piece in there too, about like a prayer that I'd prayed. And then her initial comment to me was, I don't know what your beliefs are, but I feel like God is telling, was telling me that I had to pay this money to tell you. Oh, wow. She, um, she gave me this information and within 20 minutes, I had a list of names. I sent them to a relative on Ancestry who happened to be on Ancestry at that time to like a fourth cousin who had done all this family research. And I sent those names and said, are you related to any of these people? And he wrote back and said, yes, this person. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Okay. Um, I missed my son's basketball game that day. I was supposed Whoa. to leave in a half hour after this, what I thought was going to be pointless conversation to go to his basketball game. And I still remember he came home and said, mom, you didn't come to my game. And I thought, how do I explain that? I, it's because I found my biological father. <laughs> so I found out who he was and then trying to think about how to talk about the next part and be sensitive to everybody involved. Um, but it turned out that he, is a doctor <laughs> and wow <laughs> when i looked up his name 
I found information pretty easily about the kind of doctor that he was and his service in like rural health clinics and um, some stories about how he still did his own hospital rounds and he kept his practice small. It gave me some interesting information about the kind of person that he was. And that really lessened my fear about who Mm -hmm. I was discovering. I ended up getting to meet him eventually um, to really fast forward. And Mm -hmm, it, I still have a friendship with him now and I'm really grateful for the way that story has turned out. It's been such a positive one for me. Um, It is interesting though, to kind of circle back to that theme of my struggles with who I am and how I made and what my career choice would be. I got to talk with him about at the time I was in taking prerequisites and in some of the early classes for occupational therapy. And he said, I love occupational therapy. If I had to do it again, that might be the career that I picked. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so I did have this thought that, you know, he's this doctor that a lot of people really love because of his bedside manner mm-hmm. and his relational um, way of handling his practice. And I thought, it's so interesting that missing piece of getting to see how somebody with part of your personality or part of your, the way your brain is wired, you get to see them do a career. And if they've taken that job and kind of tweaked it and made it their own, you get a chance to see that. But without that, all I had was the data of what are typical doctors? What are they like? Right. You had like these readouts from your, um, career advisory Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's this highly relational person who you know admittedly he says that he's you know a little scattered at times or he doesn't like technology you know and Mm -hmm. is he sees technology as you know it's a necessity but it's not the way that he loves to do medicine and right um, so I just it's very interesting to see uh some of the same, we've read the same books. Um, there's a book that I love and he is actually friends with the author of the book. And it was just so strange to see these wow come together. Um, and yeah, lots of things that really challenge the thought that it is entirely the experience of growing up mm-hmm. in the same household that affects the things that you have in common because there's a lot that just shows up because you share DNA. And I know that's hard for some people to think about, but it's absolutely true. Yeah, I think time and time again, the evidence comes back. So that experience, I think once I saw, experienced that connection, that allowed me to figure out what does this look like to move forward now and integrate this truth into my life. And I think brought me some closure and some healing on parts of it, which then allowed me to think about how could I make this experience easier for other people? Because I was fully aware that I had a unique happy ending, but I knew that not everybody did. And that even though I had a happy ending, that didn't make the the journey to get there easier. And then I'd say the happy ending is more like this is the trajectory of it now, but I still experience like every like so many donor conceived people, 
there's ongoing parts to this that even though I know who he is and things are good, you know, it's still going to affect me for the rest of my life. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so then I devoted more time and energy into researching what it would look like to build support and what were, what was really feasible? What, what could it look like? How could I serve people well? And I started to make connections um, with some people who are already connecting people in that space and seeing how I could partner with them or what that would look like. Um, Because knowing there was a lot to do. And so we, it would really work better if we each picked our areas that we cared about. And this experience I had with peer support, I realized um, that I had firsthand knowledge, but also then even in that initial stage of occupational therapy and mental health pieces, it it's not some new thing I'm trying to do. It's got this really great research to show how helpful it is. And the pieces that I'd experienced of the stigma, the lack of resources, feeling isolated. It's amazing. It's like you were born for this. It's like I was born for this. And so I had that, okay, these are credentials. And I actually talked to several people who had, you know, actual letters behind their name to say, is this okay for me? Like, what do I need to go? What letters do I need to go get? Mm -hmm. I asked Mm -hmm. therapists, I asked some public health professionals, um, I asked a lot of people like, okay, which is the best set of letters to go do this across the board? Every single one of them said, well, you can get letters if you want to, but the thing that you're trying to do, you don't actually need letters for, right? Um, you need a lived experience. And that's actually the thing that people with the letters can't go get. So mm-hmm. definitely stay within, you know, the realm of what you're supposed to do. Like I don't diagnose and I can't treat and, you know, all those things that, Um, I'm not a mental health professional, but I can make this space for a community to connect and do it in a way that is as healthy as it can be for what people need. And also to try to scale it for how many people there will eventually be who make this discovery. Right. And nobody, because nobody Mm -hmm. knows how many people that is like, you don't, it's like you're building a house, but you know, you're going to have to expand on it. Right. You know, you're expanding, but you don't know how how many rooms? Mm-hmm. Wow. So I originally thought that it was going to be um, based on like by state, there would be chapters of, you know, mm-hmm. something and these peer support groups would meet based on who knew they were donor conceived and they were ready to connect to each other. And I thought, well, I'll just make these resources and disperse them to whoever wants to volunteer to start these in their area And then, and I thought we'll have like a phone mentoring thing. Like, you know, that's probably the best we can do for the geography piece of it when people are on their own somewhere. Then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was like, and then. And you learned a whole new way. You learned a lot of things. Whole new way of connecting people. Yes. And there are a lot of things I don't love about COVID, of course, Mm -hmm. but um, it really did pave the way for, it required us to learn how to connect this way. And it also made us more familiar with the tools and resources and technology to do it. And so then, and also people were more isolated. So this Mm -hmm. desire to connect 
is even stronger when someone made this discovery and they are literally stripped of their existing support community anyway. So now they really need people to connect with because they've lost the interactions with some of their safest people. So I started the peer support groups last February. I started with just two pilot groups, beta mm-hmm. groups. Like, what does this look like? I thought we would meet for six weeks or eight weeks. And then I thought I would do two more. And that quickly became clear that that was not going to happen because they started in the group, shared their stories. We talked about different topics and then they just kept wanting to meet. Yeah. I had two and then I added two more and I had a wait list. Um, and then I added a few more. Wow. Um, and so then it, I, I was trying to figure out, do I, I was trying to do several things at once because I thought I'm going to train other facilitators. I want to build a training for that. Um, and I want to create a guide for the groups to go through in a more structured way if we're going to have more groups. And then I thought I need to build some resources for people who are done with the groups but still want other ways to connect. I'm um, totally overwhelmed and this isn't even my project. Yeah. So the really interesting piece was that a lot of people in the group said, you know, how are you having the time for this? And I was mm-hmm. like, well, I mean, it's COVID. So that's changed. I had been working for a nonprofit um, and couldn't continue that work mm-hmm. <laughs> due to COVID um, because I couldn't leave my kids to learn at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Off to a job. And so, um, yeah, so I... I thought, well, I have time right now, but I'm going to need to figure something else out. So I was just doing like very like odd jobs of trying to piece things together. And that's when some people in the group started saying like, can we pay you for this? Like you're spending time on this. Can we just, Hmm. I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, you didn't really choose this and I really want these groups to be free. Like, well, you can't keep doing the groups if they're all free. And so it took, it was an interesting season. Um, I still actually do want the groups to be free and would like to figure that out, but I knew it couldn't all be me financially Mm -hmm. shouldering that. So I'm still working that out, even in the model that I have now, where some of the groups are sponsored. I'm finding some sponsors and I hope to find more sponsors to make the groups free. Um, I'm in the process of becoming a nonprofit so that people could donate, but as you may guess, like becoming a nonprofit, that's another piece of time and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> financial uh, resources. It all takes resource. It, it costs money to become a nonprofit, which is yeah. a funny piece of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so it's been, it's been interesting. Right. So it was a peer support group. So, okay. So it's, it's all sorts of things, but but do you think, would you say the peer support group is the foundation? Yes. Peer support yeah. groups are the, are the foundation mm-hmm. of the donor conceived community support. Mm-hmm. And so if people, people want to find you, what do they do? They go to donorconceivedcommunity.org and there's a list of different types of groups there um, that they can join and they select and sign up for the group there. Um, we also, we have a membership area that we're trying to figure out how we want to use that space because we do have guest speakers that 
we schedule on a topic and it's open for all the groups, anybody who wants to join. So for example, when the documentary Future People came out, a lot of us watched that documentary, but then we invited the writer of that, Michael Rothman, to come and listen. He just shared with our community, we asked questions. So we hosted that conversation um, we've had therapists who will come on and talk about a specific topic and that's open to all the groups. And so we say it's open to all the members, but that membership piece is kind of, it's not traditional membership where, um, so we're, we're looking at how to build that, especially how to support people who maybe don't want to meet every week anymore, or they, they're not ready to meet every week yet. And they just want to meet on specific topics. The other interesting piece that's happened is the themes of things that come up in the groups, then we can learn what we need to address. Right. And so uh, one of the things that was really challenging, we have some members who are part of um, the LGBTQI community, and they mm. share that it was so difficult to talk about what they were going through because of the intersection of their experience as a donor-conceived person with people they care about in their community. Using donors. Using donors. Mm -hmm. So they have, there's a lot around <laughs> that. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea that if they want to have a family, how could they have a family and do this in a way that doesn't cause issues for their own children that they've experienced? Um, the, the other pieces how do they speak about their story in a way that doesn't cause them to have to defend themselves all the time? Mm -hmm. Right. Like how do they share and live authentically with their story in a way that doesn't cause them more stress? And so we felt like it was important to give people that space <laughs> to yeah, wow. have that shared experience um, that they could have some things they didn't have to explain so much that some of that would just be something they could talk about together. Um, and then same thing with the multiracial discoveries. Yeah. You have, you have so many groups and not all of them cost money. You have a lot that are free. This month we have a lot that are free because we had some sponsors that got it. Okay. The next six to eight weeks for these groups. And so my hope is then if we have more sponsors, there'll be the next six to eight weeks will be free. Got it. Got it. So if they're not free, then it's $60 for the month, which felt fairly, you know, accessible for people. Um, and then, but I went ahead and put a scholarship rate up if someone can do $30 a month, right? Because the whole goal is that it's available for people. And there's, I don't want anybody to not be able to get help because of right. finances. Yeah. If you need donor conceived support, just go to this, like contact you, <laughs> go to the group, contact the group, find out, find out what everyone can do for you. And especially because, so there, there are some great Facebook groups and online resources, and this isn't really instead of the information that you can get there. It's a different type of mm -hmm. support than what mm -hmm. you can get there because those conversations are really helpful. Um, it's great to gather information in the Facebook groups but it can be overwhelming to have that much information come in at a time. Um, and then you also lose the conversation piece. Um, you can't have private or small group conversations as easily. So the way that um, when Erin from We Are Donor Conceived, um, she and I talked about it and she has 
done such an amazing job hosting that community and shared that, you know, it's kind of like if you go into um, like a restaurant or a hotel lobby and you sit at a table and talk about your experience, you get this really wonderful um, chance to talk with each other. But then as more and more people come into that hotel lobby and it gets louder and louder and pretty soon you're standing in this conversation where you know everybody in this lobby has the same experience, but how do you meet them and how do you sit mm-hmm. down and talk to each other? So we wanted to offer that space of that round table again, where you could sit and talk to six to eight other people or some groups. It's a book group. It's 10 other people mm-hmm. reading that book with other people who have that same experience. You can still go back to the big lobby and see, yes, there are a lot of us. We're not alone. But then you also get to go back to that table and say, here's, eight people with the same experience. How was your week? What was hard? The goal is to have those small communities where you can share your story. Mm-hmm. And then sharing the story in a safe space is a great step to sharing the story in other places. Um, right. And, you know, that idea of capacity building, like I'm learning how to share my story. You tell me how you told people at your family holiday and I get a few ideas of how I can talk about it at the next family holiday. Great. So you have this larger community and then the donor conceived community is growing all the time. And then your donor conceived community support focus is to get people into these smaller groups to really have more peer support one-on-one, tell the stories, learn from each other in a less overwhelming atmosphere. Right. Um, And then have that interaction on specific topics where that is a need. The other piece is building resources where we see people in the groups who are spending energy, Mm -hmm. researching a topic, working through something, having a conversation. And there are tools that would be helpful where we can reduce that repetitive work. Then my goal is to build resources for that. So an example would be right now, somebody has to often educate their mental health provider. Very familiar with this. Yeah. Really helpful for them to have something to give that mental health provider Mm -hmm. that helps get them up to speed. Links to information, data, because there are conversations we would see happening again and again and again. They go to a therapist. The therapist says, are you sure the test is right? Yeah. I mean, how do you know the test is right? And in my opinion, that's wasted time because now the person has to go research. Mm -hmm. If the test is accurate, they call 23andMe again. 23andMe says, well, it's with this percent accuracy. Then the person goes back to the therapist. Well, now they can talk about this thing with more assurance that the results are correct. But that's a whole... Yeah week or two that didn't need to be taken mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's work that's repeated often. Another one is talking to their healthcare provider. Right now, people have to go back to their healthcare provider, and it's usually the medical assistant, and say, can you please delete my maternal or paternal medical mm-hmm. history? And then they say, why? And yeah. Yeah. with what? And there's a there's a lot in there that is just effort and energy on the donor conceived person's behalf that doesn't need to be done, redone every time. Like we could find a way to do that. Mental and emotional labor. 
yep, that labor, um, if I can build tools and resources so that labor doesn't have to be done again and again, then that also falls within the scope of what we're trying to do at donor conceived community, which is just provide support. And that's relational support, emotional support, but then also tools and resources um, so that people don't have to go researching on their own every time. The power of community. The other piece is hosting a place where people can share their story when they're ready. So we'll actually be adding a blog soon to address some of that is to reduce the labor, right? We'll share some information there. The other part though, is for people to share a perspective and to have a place to do that. That's away from just the social media conversation. There's so much work that's happening right now. Um, For example, on Instagram, where donor conceived people will spend a lot of time in the comment section, trying to explain themselves, share their experience, explain their motives, (laughs) explain that they do love their family mm-hmm. or what the challenges are with managing a relationship with 20 siblings. And then the person who originally made the comment that DNA doesn't matter mm-hmm. feels ganged up on and then they delete their comment and all that work is gone. And so that's labor that's repeated again and again. And so it would be easier to say, Here's what somebody wrote and, you know, talked about their experience. And now we can just share the link to that. And if the person wants to go read that experience, they can. Yeah. Great. But it's there and it's not going to disappear because somebody got overwhelmed in the comment section. Wow. So ever growing, ever changing, but definitely foundational support for the donor conceived community. Amazing. Give me the website one more time donorconceivedcommunity.org. Great. Great. That's amazing. (laughs) Easy to find. Um, I will put up all the resources um, when this episode airs. I'll make sure it's all on on my social media. Um, I think you and I will probably stay in touch about lots of different things. This has been really great. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story and, um, and bringing, yeah, and bringing, bringing so much of your own credentials, um, (laughs) to help others. That's, that's, it's really lovely to see. Thank you. Yeah. It, it feels strange to be in a place where I finally am not wondering how, what it's all for, you know? Right. Right. Um, There's a peacefulness about it, even though it's hard to see people struggling. Um, it feels like the right time because I see people struggling, but I know I'm doing something to help them with that struggle. And so it's very, I don't know, it feels like the right thing. Mm-hmm. And then even just based on the past, the past probably month, I'm even seeing like the corporate world piece be beneficial as I'm sure it's, it's my goal to serve the donor conceived community. When I see marketing tactics that are, harmful, mm-hmm. hurtful, and also just not productive <laughs> for the ultimate, the end goal. Um, I can't help but think I can help you with that. Or, yeah. you know, I have some some feedback for you that if you advertise anonymous donors who in 15 years are going to be angry that they're not anonymous, you know, you're... <laughs> your customer 
cycle here is not going to look so good. Mm-hmm. I do see even now, like some of some of the organizations reaching out. Um, can you take a look at this and see? Mm-hmm. Now it hasn't happened with clinics yet, but I think at some point, some the clinics, the smart ones, will say, yep. "Oh, we need to clean this up." We also want to, you know, include this huge population of people that we are creating. We want to include them in how we do what we do. I just think it's a matter of time. It's going to happen eventually. So I'm happy to help with that if it helps donor conceived people. Right. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and ultimately, if it if it helps provide donors who are more aware of the result of their donation, then that does help donor conceived people mm-hmm. because it's not it's not easy to be a donor conceived person reaching out to a donor who didn't know they were having a genetic child. Right. They heard it was like a blood doing donating platelets or blood. It's just a cell. So yeah. they're shocked. Yeah. Which, yeah. They, I mean, I'm thinking, well, I want to say biology, the bi- biology of it is pretty straightforward, but there are, it's definitely not the case. And mm-hmm. I've been on calls for potential egg donors where it is not clear because the term offspring seems mm-hmm. so moved mm-hmm. that these potential donors don't understand that if they take a DNA test, this person will find them. If it's successful, will show up as their child. So, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot, there's a lot of work to be, there's a lot of work that has been done to depersonalize or uh, make it clinical or, yeah, yeah, a lot of work. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. um, For all your work and for spending um, your afternoon with me. Uh, This is really wonderful and I'll make sure everybody can get, can get these resources if they need them. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all the work that you're doing too, to draw connections in this NPE community. So it's, um, it is, we have a lot of similarities and that's work that doesn't always have to be repeated either. Uh, We owe so much to the adoption community for the foundation they've laid for having the right to know that they're even adopted, Mm -hmm. first of all, but then having access to um, genetic relatives, biological family. Yeah. When we can all work together, it's, um, we're all stronger for it. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Repeating it for everyone in the back, donorconceivedcommunity.org. That's the place you should start. Go to their website, explore all these groups. I mean, there is no greater evidence of how badly the support is needed then to see how quickly Melissa's project has grown. DCC support folks, no matter where you are in your donor conception journey, please go check it out. Thank you to everyone for being a part of the MPE world, uh, which is growing quickly, just like DCC support. Just like we said it would. Um, it's pretty neat to see what's available out there now that wasn't even available just a few years ago. Um, and I think I'm I don't think I am. I'm, I am happy to be a part of the movers and the shakers who saw a need and are trying to do something about it each in our own way. So I guess, I guess my contribution is this podcast. And then more recently, I created the process journal available now on Amazon. It's called who even am I anymore? 
Check it out if you or a loved one is adopted, donor-conceived, late-discovery adoptee, or any part of the MPE community. Uh, I put together some open-ended questions with space for writing to help people put their process down on paper. And so far, I'm getting very positive feedback. People uh, are getting a lot out of it. So, um, so check it out. You can work on it alone with a group or with a therapist. I recommend all of the above. You can find a link to it on my website, www.everythingsrelativepodcast.com. That is also where you can find a resource list uh, for all sorts of DNA discoveries. Um, you can find out how to contact me. You can follow my socials at Everything's Relative Podcast uh, to make sure that you're up to date and part of the conversation. Thank you so much for being with me here today. I hope that it helped you in one way or another, whether it was um, really comforting for you to learn that you're not alone or, or the podcast just helps fill up the silence on a car ride. I'm here for you. I'm Eve Sturgis. New episode next week. And until then, keep taking care of yourself. Wear a mask in public spaces. Wash your hands. Fold the laundry. And don't forget to make your bed. Bye-bye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Kaylin Egan and edited by Joy Rumel. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions. Thank you.